Welcome to Real Trees Real Talk, why Nova Scotia loves real Christmas trees, from the Christmas Tree Council of Nova Scotia. My name is Jillian Blackburn and I'm the resource assistant here at CTCNS and I'm helping you dig into the Christmas tree industry by interviewing producers from all around Nova Scotia. Last season, we dug into the basics of how to keep your trees in tip-top shape for the holiday season. We explored why and where trees are donated around the province and neighboring countries. We learned some tricks of the trade and we heard some great stories from the producers themselves. If you haven't heard them already, check out our podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. This year, we'll be digging into the operations from the beginning to the end of growing a Christmas tree, the history of the Christmas tree industry, checking out some local destinations, and some added value alternative projects for the evergreen producers and the public. Along the way, some of the growers will be telling us some entertaining stories from their experiences in the field. On this episode, we'll be hearing from Marty Murphy from New Ross, Nova Scotia. Over Zoom, Marty will be telling us about the history of Christmas trees. Marty has worked on his family farm since childhood, which has been producing Christmas trees since the 1950s. In recent years, his lot has produced 5,000 trees for sales per year and are sold to other local buyers and exporters. His most meaningful achievement is adding Ruby's Trail to his lot, which you can learn more about in a past podcast episode. Marty credits his work to keeping in good shape, which provides a positive mental attitude about his work and goals for the future. Where did the tradition of having a Christmas tree in your home come from and what makes it relevant to the Christmas season? Having an evergreen in the home goes back thousands of years. People used it for a decoration as well as to lighten things up in the winter season. It was about 500 years ago that Martin Luther, the famous religious theologian, he had a religious experience walking through the forest one night as stars shone through the uh, tree. He decided that uh, he would uh, replicate that with candles. So he put a tree in his house and decorated it with candles. That was in Germany. And so in the 1600s, maybe that's why it caught on in Germany, because in uh, in that country, they were decorating their, their homes with a Christmas tree. And then in the mid-1800s, the tradition had to the United States. And even in 1848, it was done in Halifax, a Christmas tree was decorated. But it wasn't until the early 1900s that it was common across the rest of Nova Scotia to decorate a Christmas tree. And so how did this tradition travel around the world? It appears as though just caught on, traveled across the, uh, the Atlantic from Germany. And of course, Anything that happens in the United States, it's a good chance it will become common in in, uh, in Canada as well. And uh, it seems like uh, that's just the way it spreads. Cultures are sort of interchangeable. 
of course, there's also the Christian connection because Martin Luther, as I said, was a, a great theologian in the United States with Christianity. Uh, it became popular for that reason. Although there was a point in the United States where uh, it was regarded as pagan to have a Christmas tree in your house. There's a passage in the Bible that says that the heathen, uh, that only the heathen would cut a tree uh, for the purposes of, of a decoration. E even in in, uh, in Germany, it, uh, it created uh, a lot of upheaval, this whole idea of having a, uh, a Christmas tree for Christian uh, purposes. It was not looked upon fondly, but fortunately, I think uh, that's been overcome. So you said that Martin Luther saw stars through the trees, and that was a way for him to be like, oh, I should decorate this, but why... Is that the reason why we decorate trees, or is there another reason behind it too? Back in the early days, apparently they put they put food on on the trees and I uh, and branches, and I think it was just to make to make them more beautiful. It would uh, it was probably just a natural progression. You had a bare tree, and to uh, uh, sooner or later, I'm sure something was going to to end up on it to to beautify it. As we see today, it's constantly evolving what we put on our tree whatever new gimmicks Walmart or big box stores come up with or dollar store on the tree it goes. For other people, maybe they might include a picture of uh, a loved one who's passed on or uh, something uh, to remind them of their marriage date or something. Uh, uh, very personal items can go on the tree today. So uh, constantly in evolution. And people used to make their own decorations and everything too, like make garland. You could probably put different kinds of boughs in it. And I know there's popcorn strings and berry strings, those sort of things. So it was probably what was available at the time as well. Ab ab absolutely. Uh, I have a cousin and some years ago, he wanted a, a very, very natural looking tree. It had big spaces between the branches and lichens growing on it. And, uh, and he put a lot of old fashioned ornaments on it. And it was really quite beautiful. I must say that that tree, which was something that you wouldn't even find a place to sell, uh, that uh, he took that and he was able to take, to make that more beautiful than what I've seen some of these $50 number one sheared trees uh, end up looking like after being decorated. It's not always the tree, it's what you do with it when you get it. So what other, what different kinds of species do people use as Christmas trees? Or what kind of species were started out with the actual Christmas tree? It wasn't just a balsam fir, but was it? <laughs> well, uh, interesting, interestingly, in 1898, there was a shipment of spruce trees from Yarmouth, uh, Nova Scotia to New York. Uh, a lot of people might be surprised at that. People in Nova Scotia uh, might be surprised that uh, there was a point later on that so many spruce trees were cut in Nova Scotia for Christmas trees that the government started to license Christmas tree dealers because there was an outcry that using spruce, which is great for logs and pulpwood, uh, it was a waste to use spruce for Christmas trees. And now with the balsam fir, those become mature very quickly and start to deteriorate. But there was a bit of an outcry over using them as well for Christmas trees from the forestry industry, but especially especially the uh, spruce. But, uh, but and then, of course, the balsam fir did become prevalent. It did have the superior aroma. And as I said, that uh, people 
thought it was more acceptable to cut the balsam fir because it didn't have the other values. A few people in Nova Scotia grow some Fraser fir, and of course, out west, there's the Douglas fir, and uh, apparently the Colorado blue spruce is used as well. I mean, we could grow them here. It's not common to produce them here. It's amazing. They're, they're so prickly. The spruce don't always have a nice aroma that people would use them for Christmas trees. The Colorado blue spruce would certainly be a beautiful tree, no doubt about it. It's color and whatnot. With the balsam here, that's uh, it's, it's the, the smell is the selling point, and it does have wonderful other attributes as well. It's nice needles, nice color. There's also pine too. Some people still grow pine. and Well, the Douglas fir actually is a, a type of pine. A pine. It's, oh, not it's... Really, it's not really a fir. And, uh, but yes, uh, the, the white pine, I experimented with growing some red pine here back in, in, in the 80s. Uh, I had a field. One of my neighbors, he, he produced red pine. So I thought I would give it a try. And the other thing, I mean, with pine, some people paint them to give them the nice green color. So one has to question really uh, producing a tree that you have to paint to make it attractive. But yes, there there, there are pine souls. Is the painting of the pine trees or any trees at that, is that quite new? I don't know how far that goes back, but one of my other neighbors, he uh, he got into selling some pine. And and, uh, this is about, uh, oh, say 30 years ago. And uh, he showed me how he had them painted. Now, I mean, yes, they did. They did look pretty, but just the whole idea of painting the tree, I can't say for sure for how long they've been doing that, but it's, it's probably a, a, a more recent tactic. Do you think it would come with the evolution that people would want, you know, a nicer looking tree, something that looks like an artificial tree, but maybe it's, it's still real, obviously. That goes back many decades trying to make a tree look like the artificial tree. It started in the 1960s. One uh, strategy was to to shear the tree and, and and fertilize them to compete with the the artificial tree, which which was making some some headway because around 1960 demand for natural Christmas trees, the balsam fir, it it started to to decline. Something had to be done. Now, maybe part of that was our, uh, a problem of our own creation, because sometimes when the market is good, suppliers get a, a little careless with, uh, with their quality. So the artificial tree might have done us a favor, take another look at quality and come up with some new, some new strategy. It worked because by the time we got into the late 80s, it was very hard to sell a tree if it, uh, if it wasn't a shared tree. But there still are, even today, there still are small orders for, uh, for natural trees. Do you know if that's a cultural thing or do they go to a specific spot? I'm not sure why that market exists, but uh, I know we did have one supplier here in New Ross up to very recently, maybe still, is that he did have a marketplace somewhere for those uh, natural, natural trees. And I am quite confident just from my own experience because trees that don't make the market after I am done harvest, I put them on my lawn. I just put a sign out there, lawn trees for $3 or, or whatever. And every now and then I will put a, a natural tree out there. I had one out there last year. These people from Halifax came along and they liked it so much. Uh, they said, we're giving you $20 for that. It's just what we want. So I said, no, I said, you only have to give me three. Oh, no, no, no. This is worth $20 to us. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. They put $20 in the container for that natural tree. 
Yeah, you might have a market for it, Marty. <laughs> well, well, the big market is certainly still the, the shared tree. Although I will say that the tree doesn't have to be, in many cases, as thick and heavy of a shared tree as it used to be. In fact, the big box stores, they like uh, a more lightly shared tree for shipping purposes, for one thing, because they palletize them. And uh, those the heavy shared trees, you can't get very many on a pallet. So, uh, and that makes me happy too because I would rather produce a shared tree that's a little lighter, uh, certainly easier to handle. And I really think today, economically, it's to your advantage to to grow a a lighter tree. You can cut it a year or two sooner and everybody's happy and the work is not as hard. I would say that's the way to go. How was the Christmas tree used before the actual tradition started, before they were used for Christmas trees for the season? The balsam, uh, the balsam fir, uh, the oil from it was regarded at the time of Christ when uh, it was regarded as something very royal. And there are those who think that the baby Jesus was one of the kingly gifts that the baby Jesus received, balsam uh, fir tree oil. It was called the, the balm of uh, Gilead. So it was a very valued commodity, almost like gold. Uh, it also had uh, anti-inflammatory qualities that it could provide. Again, uh, it was it was uh, quite valued, and I I was uh, surprised that it was uh, that particular. You know, the balsam fir uh, would have been used over there. Uh, that long ago. Even today, those anti-inflammatory qualities are are still recognized. It's an anticoagulant. More recently, it's been used uh, successfully in the treatment of uh, cancer, breast cancer, for example. So, uh, Really? uh, Wow. Now, this hasn't uh, translated into uh, more sales of balsam fir trees, but it's an interesting quality that they have. Were they used for lumber and building too before? Because the lumber industry was quite prevalent here before the Christmas tree industry was, wasn't it? Yes, it it uh, it was, and still today it it is. It's not the wood of choice. I think people would take a a, a spruce log any day over a balsam fir log. The spruce they're more durable. Uh, last longer. You you can still sell them certainly for stud wood or or wh- whatever. But again, it's it's not it's not the wood of of choice, which uh, again makes it all the better that they uh, do have a use as as a Christmas tree. So when did the? I know we touched on this a little bit before, but when did the practices of shearing and fertilizing and maintenance of your ground cover and those sort of things come into the industry? The shearing in the uh, the 1960s had been uh, initiated. Other techniques as well to improve the quality, uh, more aggressive butt pruning, more aggressive spacing. A sheared tree required more light and more space. I believe people like Tom Ernst was hired to go around the different communities and show growers how to implement some of these techniques. There was some resistance. It did catch on and by the 80s, very common. But as far as how to share a tree, sometimes I chuckle when I look at some of our, our workshop sessions that are set up and they're still telling us how to share a tree. Now, sometimes I like to think, well, that must be for new growers who don't know. But most of the people there are people like myself who have been doing it for a long time and still they're telling us how to do it. 
And yet, it seems like every time uh, there's some new little thing that I, I do learn and want to try, that, that does work. It's interesting at our Seffernsville tree lot, our experimental tree lot, it's volunteer growers share the trees there. Everybody takes their own ideas about how the tree should be shared. Sometimes I'll leave a top. If it's a little short, I'll leave a top grow. And the next person who comes along, They'll snip that top off. Maybe I'll cut the tree in a little tight to make it more narrow. And somebody else will come and say, uh, how nice a broad tree look. And yet the trees, they always sell. It's never any trouble to uh, find a market for those trees. And yet everybody there has a slightly different idea of how to go about doing it. Everybody, That's where it comes in again. Everybody's preference is different. What about um, fertilizer and ground cover care? Those come in with shearing? I remember back in the uh, 70s, my father was growing trees in a swamp area. This one gentleman, he told my father to uh, try putting some fertilizer on those trees to green uh, to green them up a bit. So uh, into into the 70s, people did start fertilizing, and certainly it was very common in, in the 1980s. It has made a huge difference. And now more recently with soil testing and whatnot, as you know, I just had my uh, soil tested, and uh, that will give me a better idea of what the deficiencies are to uh, to have a better idea of what kind of fertilizer to use. And as far as ground cover goes, some ideal ground covers are, are the, the bunchberry and, and clover. Now, the bunchberry, they seem to come along after, if you use a herbicide, and the nice thing about the bunchberry, it's hard for hardwoods uh, to, to get up through it. Now, the bad thing is it's, it's a little difficult for for Christmas trees to get up through it too, as, as the seedling, uh, it might be necessary to do a little planting of nursery stock. I was commenting the other day just how, how beautiful the bunchberry makes your tree lot look, almost like a, a white carpet. I have a lot of blueberries uh, growing uh, in, in my land. I know there are those who would suggest that uh, blueberries can be a host to other predators. I like blueberries. I like to eat them while I'm working. They're a very healthy <laughs> food. And, uh, and they look nice. They only get so big. But again, some people would, would not like me saying that. But uh, And if visitors walk through your tree lot, uh, hey, it's an added extra. Uh, all the antioxidants in the blueberries. Other places, you you just take what you get for ground cover. It it might not be what you desire. That's really the objective: to to not have too much competition for for your Christmas trees. I, and ferns, you don't want too many of them either. To me, the ecology of a tree lot—it's not just one or two types of ground cover. So uh, I like I do like to try to keep it as natural as as possible. Again, without uh, the competition becoming so great that it becomes an impediment to my Christmas trees. A huge thank you is sent out to Marty as he's collected a large number of photos, articles, news clippings, and other historical documents from the Christmas tree industry. We are in the process of digitizing these documents and we'll hopefully be sharing them through the CTCNS website. Marty has also written a large history report outlining some of the history from New Ross area where it can be found at newross.ca and is called The Christmas Tree Industry in New Ross to 2016. 
On the next episode, we'll be diving into some of our local history, where Marty and John Reeves will be sharing their family history, local historical practices, and sharing some great stories. Do you want to know more about the Christmas tree industry and where you can find more information about your Nova Scotia famous Christmas trees? Visit the CTCNS website at iloverealtrees.com, ctcns.com, and our social media outlets where you can find updates, contests, and education on the Christmas tree industry here in Nova Scotia. And I will catch you next time on Real Trees Real Talk. (laughs) 